this morning we, we are going uh, we're going to delve into the life of David, and uh, we're going to look at not just what he did, but but how he thought. We're going to try to get inside the mind of a king, and we spend so much time focusing on actions instead of evaluating thought patterns, not recognizing that it's actually the way that you think that leads to what you do. And Jesus, when he was here on earth, he primarily preached two things. He preached the kingdom of God, and he preached repentance. And repentance isn't saying, oh, I'm sorry for doing this. It's actually changing the way that you think. Bruce Lee famously said, as you think, so you shall become. And it's so true. King David, he represents one of history's most transparent leaders. And, uh, and he was someone who had some, some really big ups and some, some really, really big downs. And, uh, I, but I want to give you a little bit of the backstory. I want to give you the context as to this point in time, this point in history, as to, to what is happening with the Israelites and uh, what was going on in that day. So that at this time, the Israelites, they were actually governed by judges. Okay, they didn't have a king, they had judges. And that was kind of the governing rule and how they sort of had order. And they decided that they wanted to be like other nations. And so they started looking at what the other nations around them were doing. And they noticed that these other nations had kings. And so all of a sudden, they decided that they wanted kings as well. And we have this tendency to look at the Bible and we look at all the mistakes they made. And we're like, oh, those Israelites, you know, at it again, always chasing after these other things. But when was the last time you sat down? You actually evaluated your decisions, and you honestly looked at the decisions that you make and then questioned whether those were influenced by culture, by other people, by your friends. Okay, if you're, if you're that stubborn person in here and you're like, ain't nobody going to influence me. I make all my decisions. You know, everything just comes from this. Every thought, every action, every, every purchase I make, it's all original. Like, you're, you're foolish if you're thinking that. I remember I found this out when we named my daughter, okay? Her name's Phoenix. I was thinking, this is the most original name in the world. Nobody else is ever going to come up with this name. You know, and there's this thing called generation think, you know, or group think. And, and so I just thought, you know, there's no, she'll be the only Phoenix in the entire world. Eight billion people. We will have the most unique name. And then shortly after she was born, I was scrolling on Facebook, and I found some lists, and uh, it had, like, the 10 most popular millennial girl names. And her name was on there. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, it's, it's not, it was not unique, you know, as, as I thought it was. And so there's so much other influence that people have over our decisions that we make. So it brings up the question, why, why was having a king an issue? Okay, what, what's the big deal? They wanted a king. The reason that it was an issue is that they didn't need a king because God was their king. And so the fact that they wanted a king was actually a rejection of God as their king. And so, so God tells the prophet Samuel, Samuel's like, he's irate. He's like, you Israelites, you cannot do this. And God's like, hey, it's all right. Okay, just, just, just let it happen because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so they're going to let it happen. So Saul is then anointed the king of Israel. And it doesn't take long for him to become disobedient. And the prophet Samuel says to King Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So God then sends the prophet Samuel to the, the house of Jesse. Seven sons are introduced to Samuel, and each one, even though they look kingly, they're not selected. 
And the youngest, David, he's pulled from the field. And Samuel says, this is the one. In verse 13 and 14, it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Now, if you want to talk about the quickest way to get your brothers resentful at you, it is being anointed king in front of them while they just got rejected for the position. So this is just my thought, but I think there was probably some family conflict after this happened that was probably pretty deeply rooted. But what we see happen is we see this transition of power, transition of power of leaving King Saul and this anointing coming upon King David. Have you ever heard the term lame duck president? All right, the the term, what it means is the successor has been elected. And so now there's this transition of power between the outgoing president and the president-elect. Saul is basically now operating as a lame duck king. He has the title, but not the power behind it, because the power didn't come from the title. The power came from the anointing. And and often we have a a misunderstanding of what anointing is. We we say things like, you know, and, and, you know, maybe you've said things like that. I probably have too. Like, oh, that song was so anointed, or that service was, was so anointed. Anointed is someone, a person chosen by God. Okay, it's a calling. And so inanimate objects, they're not anointed. People are anointed when they step into the call that God has on their life. And so when you see that person operating in that calling, that's when you say, wow, man, that person is so anointed. That that, that guy, that woman, it's it's, it's as if they were created for to do that thing or, or to be in that role or that position. You see God working through them. You see them operating and living out the call that God has on their life. And from that, you sense the anointing that is on them as those two things merge together. Now, this is so interesting. Samuel leaves, and David's still a shepherd. Samuel leaves, and David is still a shepherd. How often do we disrespect God? By forgetting his promise, disregarding his call, refusing to operate in our anointing because it didn't happen right away in the timing that we thought it would. There's power in waiting. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, 10. Two weeks ago, our staff, we went to uh, Spring Lake Park Reserve. I'd never heard of it before. Beautiful park, like on the St. Croix River. And we fasted and we prayed the entire day. And I told my staff, I said, for the first 30 minutes, I didn't, I didn't want us to journal or read or bring up this, this long list of requests. I wanted us to simply pray and meditate on that single verse. Be still and know that I am God. You, you see, as Christians, we're not insulated anymore from anyone else from difficult situations that happen. The difference is, as Christians, we don't spiral because our foundation is on something unshakable. We have a different foundation. And so if you get that diagnosis that you hope that nobody else ever gets and and you feel that fear and anxiety trying to keep its way in, be still. Know that I am God. You might have lost your job and money was already tight as is. Be still and know that I am God. 
My relationship, my marriage, it's just not working how I thought it was. And so my natural inclination is to, to jump in and try to manufacture and take control and force things to happen. And God says, be still and know that I am God. We don't spiral. We stand full of faith. We look anxiety and fear and danger in the eyes. And we say, there's nothing that can happen out there that's going to change how I feel in here because I'm rooted on the foundation of God and his word. It's ironic because it was Saul's inability to wait that resulted in the removal of his anointing first, followed by his kingship second. David is still a shepherd, but he's an anointed shepherd. And in 1 Samuel 17, we, we see a shepherd with an anointing that's a lot more powerful than an ungodly king of an entire nation. And so the Israelites, they're at war with the Philistines. The Philistines have, have creeped their way up. They're now at the border of basically with the Israelites. They're at Israel's doorstep, and they have this warring champion named Goliath. Everyone is afraid to fight him, including King Saul. But David, using a sling and some rocks, the power of the Holy Spirit, defeats the giant and becomes the hero of a nation in the process. And so the first thing that we learn from the mind of a king is that he operated in the anointing before he had the position. Some of you are waiting to take that next step because you don't yet have the title or position. You, you think you can't operate in the anointing because you incorrectly believe that the influence will come from the position instead of from God himself. And so David didn't just sit there. He made the most out of every opportunity. Last Sunday, we talked about contentment. Contentment is not in conflict with ambition. You see, when you know who you are in Christ, contentment will follow you everywhere, regardless of circumstances, which go up and down. Ambition is making the most of those circumstances that you are presented with. It's having a vision for the future. Some of you in this room, you have a call on your life to be a full-time pastor or a full-time missionary, and you're going to be leading us at some point to go follow that call that God has on your life. You don't have currently the title, the position, the platform yet, but that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be walking in the activity of those things right now. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking. So you might be a server at a restaurant, start thinking like a manager. You might be a teacher at a school, start thinking as if you were the principal, where he looks at every teacher, every student, every class, and he sees how they all work together to either add to or detract from healthy cultures of the school? What if you started viewing church not as a service that you attend, but a group of people that you come here to serve? And whatever role, serving role you assume, you take an ownership mindset. You're not simply doing what you're asked, but you're going above and beyond in any area that you can. Colossians 3, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so this verse will, will quickly determine what you're doing for human appreciation and recognition and what you're actually doing for God. I genuinely appreciate and try to verbalize that appreciation for all of our volunteers that, that make everything run here at church. But our best volunteers, even though it's always nice to be thanked, they don't need it. 
because that's not what drives them. Okay, so when Talmadge mows the lawn every single week for free, he's not doing it to try to please me. He's doing it because he cares about how God's yard looks. He cares about God's building. And so he does it because he takes pride in those things. He wants everybody else to be able to take pride in God's house. A church is at its healthiest not when its members are doing things to please or to help the staff or the pastors. They're doing it to try to please God. And they're giving everything they are. They're operating in the gifts that they have. So following the death of Goliath, David now reaches celebrity status in the nation of Israel. King Saul becomes jealous of David's influence. Think about that. The king is jealous of the shepherd. The king's jealous of the shepherd. And so Saul's jealousy turns to murderous hate, and he tries to kill David. And King Saul chases David to a place called En Gedi. And uh, we've got a picture of it there. When I was in Israel, this is my absolute favorite place. There's this little river that kind of cut itself, you know, through on its way down and created this, this valley on either side. And there's these, these caves in there. And just a, a beautiful place. And so David finds himself here at En Gedi, King Saul chasing him. And he's hiding in these caves, these very caves, with his men. And I want you to think a little bit about just the the process that's happening here, okay? He started as a shepherd. He then became a national hero, okay? So he's on this trajectory. And he knows he's going to be king. And now in between here, he he finds himself a fugitive. Like, I don't think that this was in David's plan. Like, like he, he saw it going like this, and all of a sudden it took a big dip down, and now he's hiding in this cave, This was not the route that he thought it was going to go. And it's really easy for two mindsets to creep in when things don't go as planned, when it doesn't line up with our timing and our thought of how things should play out. Number one, a victim mindset. A victim mindset is when you blame everyone and everything around you instead of taking personal responsibility. Because if you can pretend that everything's out of your control, then, you know, hey, I had nothing to do with it. Wasn't my fault, so there's nothing I could have done. And so then it allows just this secular, you know, thing to go and go, and it just snowballs, and all of a sudden all the problems are everywhere else, and it's never you. The second one is a poverty mindset, which is you're living in scarcity with this fear that there's never going to be enough, living in fear that things are never going to work out. And when you live in these mindsets, nobody can help you until they help you realize or you realize what it is that you're operating in. And notice how I said mindsets. Because when you have the mind of a king, you realize that poverty is a mindset more than a circumstance. David did not want to be hiding in a cave and would much rather have been operating and living as a king. But from my study of David, aside from a a few major mistakes he made, he was not someone who accepted a victim and poverty mindset, but instead he knew that God was the source, and therefore his relationship with God was the most important thing. There's a reason that poverty is generational, and it's not because some person or system is preventing you from succeeding. It's because of the way that you think. And I want, to, I want to illustrate this difference, okay? Because some of you are like, I get it. And some of you are like, that's not what I grew up knowing. It's not what I grew up hearing. I want to illustrate the difference between what you think and between what's real, okay? 
being rich is relative, all right? Because if we compare us as Americans to virtually any other nation, we're extremely rich. High standard of living, the stuff that we can afford on a regular basis, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, but I, I want to take a little microcosm of just the United States and talk about what it means to be rich. Like I said, it's relative. But there's this idea of, you know, the millionaire status. I would say most of us would agree, most Americans would agree, if you reach millionaire status, that's an achievement, you know, and you would be considered rich. And it's something that we kind of look at, and it's, you know, I would say it's even kind of ingrained in, like, the American dream of, like, you know, reaching that status. If I were to ask you, what percent of millionaires in the United States inherited all their wealth what would you guess? I want you to just kind of think of a number. I actually have data, okay? If you are a boomer or a millennial, I have data for, for how our generations actually answer this question. So if you're a, a boomer or a millennial, okay, 52% of boomers and 74% of millennials believe that millionaires in the United States inherited all their wealth. So they believe it wasn't earned, you know, it was just, you know, your, your parents were rich, your grandparents were rich, that wealth moved its way down, and you just inherited it. So you, you, know, you didn't do anything, you didn't start some company or, or have some accomplishment, you just got rich by basically being born into a wealthy family. And so that's, that's the perception, okay? So let's look at what the reality is. The reality is that 79% of millionaires in the United States receive zero inheritance, Think about that. It's kind of cool. 79% of millionaires in the United States are first-generation millionaires. Only 21% received any kind of inheritance. And even of that 21%, a lot of them didn't receive nearly enough to make them millionaires. But, but I, there's a, another study that I, was pretty interesting, done by the Federal Reserve. Okay? They, they did a study of just the general population. And what percent of the general population receives an inheritance? And what would you guess? 21%. So the exact same percentage of everyone in this room compared to millionaires, we receive inheritances at the exact same percentage. And so the millionaire is no more likely to receive an inheritance than the broke neighbor who lives right next to him. And it's crazy just looking at the difference between our perception and what is reality. And so when you look into it, when you get into the mindset of it, it's like, okay, well, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a business partner, okay, you're going to go into business with them, who is rich in money but has a poverty mindset, or a broke partner who has the mind of a king, someone with drive, someone who won't operate as a victim? And the thing is, most of us would be like, I'll take the guy with money. Most of us would. If we're honest, we're like, I'm going to go after the guy with the current resources. But if you were to ask a current millionaire, billionaire, they know that money's not limited. They know that wealth can be created. And so they would go after the person who's rich in mindset. They'd say, I, I, I want to partner with this person because they know the right mindset. At face value, David's situation, his, his circumstance doesn't look great. Definitely doesn't look kingly. But David was not relying on outward perception of man, but he was relying on the inward promise of God. And ironically, wouldn't you know, as David is in this cave with his men, King Saul chasing him, trying to kill him, wanders his way into this very cave to relieve himself. He goes in there to go to the bathroom. And so David's men, they're like, this is perfect. This is what we've been waiting for. David, everybody loves you, okay? You're already the warrior of our nation. 
Everyone loves you and wants to follow you. All you got to do, God's basically delivered King Saul into your hand. Go kill him. And then we all together get to get out of this cave and we get to go march into Jerusalem. And everyone, no, one, no one's going to be you know, upset. Everyone's going to be happy. And now you are going to be our new king. And David refuses because he knows that God is the one who puts Saul in the position he's in. And you reap what you sow. And so if David shortcuts the process and puts himself into the position of king before God does, what's going to prevent someone else from doing the exact same thing to him when he's king? When you elevate yourself, you will fear losing your position and fight to keep it. But when God elevates you, even kings can't remove you. So King Saul, he dies in battle. David is crowned king. His call comes to fruition. His anointing matches his position. And when your anointing leads you to the position that you're in, you're on the cusp of greatness. And we can be uncomfortable with this idea of pursuing greatness because we see what greatness is defined as in culture. Okay, So we look at the celebrities and the billionaires, and we know enough where it's like, I know I'm not supposed to pursue many of the things that they're pursuing. And if that's greatness, then, then you know, I don't think I'm supposed to pursue greatness. And, and so then what happens is we really assume uh, kind of this false modesty or f- false humility that we aren't supposed to be confident or ambitious or want to be world changers, but instead that we should just remain in the cave forever. God had David in the cave for a reason and for a purpose, but he was never meant to remain there. The disciples, they were once arguing with one another about who should be called the greatest and who was the greatest. And Jesus comes in and he doesn't rebuke them, which he does many other times in Scripture. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, oh, you you prideful people. Why don't you get it? Don't you understand? You're not supposed to be seeking this. He doesn't do that. Instead, he redefines what greatness is. He teaches them about servant leadership. References the kingdom to come, not just the physical kingdom here on earth. So we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. David is now king. And it says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so this was common practice during the winter months because of rain and because of the colder temperatures. They would actually uh, pause wars and they would resume them again in the spring or they would just wait until the spring. And they wanted better weather. And, I, you know, I guess if you're putting your life on the line, like, I guess it's fair to say if I'm going to die, I want it to be nice outside. And so, so they would wait until that time. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David, he's on the roof. He sees this woman. Temptation. Now just because you're tempted does not mean that you are sinning or necessarily doing something wrong. Now, if you go looking for temptation, you'll find it. But sometimes, even when you're trying to avoid it, sometimes it still comes to you face to face. And it's rarely the first look that gets you in trouble. Because sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and their temptation is. It's the second look. Because the first look you can mock up to coincidence, but the second look is intentional. And so not only does David continue to look, he actually invites someone else into his sin. 
He says, hey, hey, come, come with me. Yeah, you, you see her? Who's that? He invites someone else into the sin that he's committing. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. This is what happens when you entertain temptation and you refuse to confess your sin. Things get worse. David brings her in, sleeps with her. David is hoping he could get away with this affair. But now there's living proof of the affair. Bathsheba is pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. How nice. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So David tries to get Uriah to go sleep with his wife, So they can pretend that Bathsheba is pregnant with their child instead of his child. And Uriah, he just doesn't make this easy. He's a man of conscience. He's a man of principle. And so instead of going and enjoying time with his wife and enjoying being at his home, he says, how can I do this? There's other soldiers uh, along and uh, they're, you know, they're on the battlefield. How can I go enjoy my home when none of them get to? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Literally, he was carrying his own death sentence. He was so trustworthy, so reliable that King David knew he wouldn't open it. He's carrying his own death sentence and giving it to the commander of the armies. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And so one look, isn't that, isn't that the, the excuse we often give? It's just one look, just one drink, just, just one. It was just this one time. It's just this one thing. And yet this one thing led to a second thing. And before you know it, it turned into King David breaking the sixth, the seventh, the ninth, and the tenth commandment. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. That look led to lust, that lust led to adultery, that adultery led to murder, which led to cover-up. And he was bored. It's amazing how many bad decisions we make when we're bored, angry, or sad. All right, that, that's about 90% of them right there. But, but I want to go a little bit further back. Before David did what he did, King David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't supposed to be on the roof. In fact, he wasn't even supposed to be in the palace. I want you to go go back to verse 1. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, the writer specifically emphasizes that David sent Joab and, and the king's men and the entire army, and they all left, but David remained in Jerusalem. David knew better because a king fights his own battles. David makes the grave error of stepping away from his responsibility. And and I picture him on the roof, bored, slightly guilty, because he knows he isn't where he's supposed to be. 
Bored and guilty is a dangerous combination. So he's probably looking for a distraction, and it just so happened, beautiful distraction right in front of him. He was supposed to be in battle. If any of you have done premarital with me, you know that I tell the guy that the guy needs a garden to tend. Now, the garden's metaphorical. It could be a real garden, but the idea is that you need to have a purpose. You need to have dreams. You need to have a vision. You need to have things that you're working on, responsibilities that, there, that takes a time commitment because there, there, is, there is nothing sadder than a purposeless man, but it's even worse if you are a woman and you link yourself to that man for life. Will you stand this morning? Three lessons, three mindsets. If we want to live out and have the influence and have the power and have the anointing of a king, we need to start thinking and operating in that way. The first one is he operated in the anointing before he had the position. What's God called you to? Regardless if you currently have the position or not. Secondly, poverty is a mindset more than a circumstance. What areas do you need to accept responsibility in instead of pretending that everything's out of your control? And lastly, a king fights his own battles. What activities or relationships do you need to re-engage or fight for again? I want us to just take a moment. Prayer team, you can make your way up here. I want us to just close our eyes. I want to just take a moment. I want us to reflect on those questions. And I want to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and perceive not only our actions, but also our intentions and most definitely our thoughts. And that he would expose areas that are out of line. Just ask the Holy Spirit right now to reveal those areas 